1: There's a book by the author, René Domal called Mount Analogue and it's sort of an allegorical description of a spiritual journey using the metaphor of climbing a mountain. And he has some very good advice about how to undertake this journey. He said, keep your eye fixed on the way to the top. But don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends upon the first. Don't think you're there just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal. The first step depends upon the last. And I love that last little piece. The last step depends upon the first, we have to take the first steps, but the first step also depends on the last. And so even though we're at, or toward the beginning of the retreat, this evening I'd like to talk a bit about the end of the path. Because the direction of our journey, the direction of our first steps, depends on our understanding of what the last step is, and so it's helpful to have that comprehensive view of the direction that we're going in. So, the French philosopher and political activist and mystic Simone Weil she wrote. What people are looking for is not wrong, but they are looking for it in the wrong place. That's us. You know, although we may call it by many different names, we might call it love or peace or enlightenment or awakening, in some fundamental way, what we're all looking for is a genuine happiness, now, a lasting kind of happiness, sense of completion, a sense of fulfillment. And this is precisely what the Buddhist teachings are about. They're about finding or realizing or awakening to this potential that's within us. The problem is, as Simone Weil says, most of us are looking for it in the wrong place. And it's just this misdirected craving for happiness. It's our misdirected desire for happiness that keeps the whole wheel of samsara. It's the Buddhist term for just the endless cycle of conditioned existence. It's our misdirected desire for happiness that keeps us bound to this wheel, endlessly turning. And so the Buddha talked to this very directly. And often he would be talking to the order of monastics and he'd refer to them as bhikkhus. But bhikkhus in a more general sense also means everyone on the path. Everybody walking on the path could be referred to as a bhikkhu. So when you hear this, as the Buddha you know, gives his teachings, and he says, bhikkhus, he's talking to you. <laughs> so listen, you know, with that, with that ear. Bhikkhus, I do not envision even one other fetter Fettered by which beings go wandering and transmigrating for a long, long time, like the fetter of craving. That's very explicit. You know, he really nails what this quality of mind is that keeps us transmigrating, even within this one lifetime, just through all the ups and downs of our lives. So what is craving? Although we're familiar with that word, it's not—it's not an esoteric word. It's probably not one that we use all that often, you know, in our daily lives. And yet the Buddha is really highlighting this particular quality of mind. So it's worth uh, really exploring and trying to understand its meaning and nuances. So what is craving and how do we experience it in our lives? So craving or desire is the translation of the Pali word tanha. And tanha means thirst, or sometimes it's translated as the fever of unsatisfied longing. And I really like these, these translations of thirst, and fever as a translation of tanha even more than craving, because those words of thirst or fever really can give us a visceral sense of what the mind quality is like. I mean, just, just think of when you were really thirsty and how compelling that is, you know, and what, a, what a strong primal feeling it is. That's the meaning of tanha which is often translated as craving, you know, or desire. So in English we often use the words desire and craving interchangeably. But this can often be confusing because desire in English has a wide range of meanings. We use it in a lot of different ways, that term. Sometimes desire does mean the thirst or fever of longing associated with greed and grasping and clinging. So sometimes that's exactly what desire means. But sometimes desire simply means the motivation to do something, you know, I have the desire for awakening, or I have a desire to serve, I have a desire to be of service, to be of help. So that's the use of the word desire in a very different way. So when we hear the Buddha talk about the end of desire and the end of craving, you really need to understand that it's a very specific kind of desire, and there are many other kinds of desires that can be quite wholesome. Uh, so, you don't want to confuse that too, these two. For tonight's talk, I will be using the terms desire and craving interchangeably. Okay? But keep in mind that in other contexts, the word desire can mean many other things. So, you don't want to get confused by this linguistic usage. The Buddha pointed out, with his usual incisive clarity, some particular fields of craving that misdirect us from the happiness and from the peace that we aspire to. And tonight I'd like to explore two of these areas of craving. The first is the craving for sense pleasures. And the second is what the Buddha called craving for becoming. Now, the craving and desire for sense pleasures is the most obvious. I mean, this is not hard to see. It's the ones we are most familiar with. You know, these are all the pleasant sights and sounds and scents and tastes and sensations in the body, all these pleasant, agreeable sense objects that we desire, that we want, that we crave. They're desirable and they're agreeable to us. And we could also include all the pleasant states of mind. So all of this, this craving or desire for sense pleasures… This is just our usual engagement with the world. You know, as we're living our lives, we enjoy and want pleasant experiences, and as much as possible, we'd like to avoid unpleasant experiences. Do any of you crave unpleasant experiences? <laughs> uh, there may be, but it's not common. <laughs> you know, it just seems so natural. It, it seems completely natural, and of course, we of course we want pleasant things and we want to avoid unpleasant things. So this this just seems completely natural and normal, and it is. But here, right here is where the Buddha begins a very interesting analysis of this situation. He did not condemn sense pleasures as being sinful. So that's, that's not at all part of the Buddhist framework. Rather, in his analytic, and we might even say scientific, introspective approach, He began to ask some very pointed questions about his life experience. The first question he asked of himself, what is the gratification in the world? That's a fundamental question of what gratifies us in the world, in our experience. And as a young prince, as it's told, he enjoyed the whole range of sense pleasures. You know, he led led a very privileged life in that sense and was fully immersed in the enjoyment of these pleasures. So they were not at all foreign to him. And then as it's related in the discourses, the thought came to him Whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. That makes sense. Whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, that's the gratification that we get from it. If there was no pleasure and joy in the world, beings would not become enamored of it. So we become enamored of the world, of sense pleasures, precisely because they do bring us a kind of happiness. So we need to acknowledge that. That's kind of our common understanding of our lives, right? Different kinds of sense pleasures bring a certain kind of happiness to us, and that's why we keep going after them. It's precisely because there is this gratification. So the Buddha's not saying there's no gratification in this. He's saying there is gratification, and that's why we crave them. But rather than simply listening, you know, to the Buddha's words, it's always good to listen to the words as instructions for our own introspection. Because it's not about, oh, the Buddha said this, and we either agree or we disagree. That's not the point at all. The Buddha is pointing to something, and he's inviting us to look at where he's pointing so we can see for ourselves. So we can take the very same questions that he asked of himself and ask it of ourselves. What is the gratification that we find in our lives? That would be worth reflecting on. What different experiences in the body, in the mind, are we enamored of? What different kinds of experiences do we desire and want? That would be an interesting internal survey. You know, just to get a very clear picture instead of just muddling through life, going after this and going after that, but really to get a clear picture. Yeah, this is where I find gratification. These are the delights, you know, that I become enamored of. So we personalize these teachings. So our cravings and gratifications seem to come in a very wide range of intensities and frequencies. So on one end of the craving spectrum might be the obsessive desires that consume our lives. You know, there might be addictive desires for food, for sex, for alcohol, for drugs, for success, for power, for fame for wealth, for possessions, for comfort, even for some people there's an obsessive desire for love. So the mind can create this craving and fall into this craving for this wide range of different experiences. And it's interesting that most of, or a good part of the great literature of the world is really about these obsessive cravings that one might say infect human beings, and we're all part of this. You know, we, we can see this in ourselves to some degree or other. And in so many ways, you know, our, this Western culture, it just feeds this kind of craving. In fact, We could almost say the whole society revolves around it. One of my favorite uh, examples was a sign in a storefront, store window in New York, and the sign said, Don't let desire pass you by. (laughs) (laughs) The country would probably collapse if we let (laughs) desires pass us by. So that's the message, you know, we we grow up with that of feed the desire, feed this as if it's a good thing. So it, it takes a lot of care to begin to unpack this conditioning within ourselves because it is so pervasive. Or we may have sense desires and cravings and wants Not necessarily on this obsessive level, you know, that's consuming our lives, but still may be the driving force behind many of our actions. Now, what drives us to do things in the world? And there'll be a a wide range of motivations, but it would be very interesting to pay attention to see to what extent It's desire or wanting or craving sense pleasures that are driving our actions. Just so we get a clear picture of our lives and the choices we're making. We can also watch desires, and this is really interesting on retreat, I've found. Uh, We can watch desires as just quickly passing thoughts in the mind, you know, passing thoughts of wanting. And what I found interesting is to see even these light passing thoughts, to often see how deeply persistent they are. And I've had many, many examples of this being on retreat. I could be sitting and walking you know, maybe during walking meditation, the thought will come: "Oh, a cup of tea would be nice." And I just watch it come and go. Take a few more steps. Oh, yeah, a cup of tea. <laughs> and take a few more steps. Just let it come and go. Cup of tea. A Few more steps. Cup of tea. And at some point, go get the cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, so it's like this. T- it's like a blade of grass, you know, pushing up through cement. <laughs> This very small thing, but with such deep roots, craving and desire is a primal energy within us. So even though at, you know, in particular situations the content may seem trivial, the energy behind it is not trivial. So we really want to begin to explore, you know, this this part, this aspect of our lives, because it plays such a powerful role. <laughs> it's also very helpful to see how seemingly trivial desires, momentary desires, can sometimes strengthen into really strong habits. We go from, I want, to, I need, to, I must have, you know, and that becomes the trajectory. Just as a totally ridiculous example of this powerful tendency. So I was on a self retreat at home, and I was just in the habit of enjoying cup of coffee in the morning for breakfast, you know, kind of get the whole system going. And I had, you know, all the paraphernalia, the coffee beans in the grinder and, you know, making the perfect cup of coffee. One day I go downstairs and the coffee grinder didn't work. And the first word that came to my mind, disaster. Disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that in the back? (laughs) And in that moment I felt it to be that. I mean, given the state of the world, (laughs) a broken coffee grinder doesn't really rise to the level of disaster, but it felt like that because of the power of the habit and the power of the wanting, the power of craving. It was so. I mean, I had to laugh at it, you know. Finally, (laughs) (laughs) you know. So many of these different patterns of craving and desire—they're so familiar to us. It's—it's just how we live. It's just what our lives are about. They just seem like the very ordinary fabric of life. This is, this is what life is about. And because there's so much a part of who we take ourselves to be, you know, we really, in a way, define ourselves and define our personality by the things we want and the things we desire. So there's so much a part of who we take ourselves to be that very often they're invisible. We're just not paying attention to it because they seem so ordinary. So, just as an experiment, you know, a retreat environment while you're here would be a very good opportunity just to notice the gratification that comes from even very simple sense pleasures. Just so you attune to the dynamic, you know, of anticipated sense pleasure and then the wanting and the craving and then the gratification So, again, it goes from just being a theoretical description, you know, that the Buddha laid out. We internalize the experience of it. We understand it from the inside. So, you might notice, you know, just during the day, what things during the day give you moments of delight? Here, they're probably limited, but... (laughs) There are enough. You know, what do you become enamored of, even on a a slight scale? Maybe it's lunch. You know, uh, know, all the good food and you can feel that kind of... (laughs) We'll back up a minute. Notice the difference between when you're doing walking meditation back and forth and when you're walking to lunch. You might be walking just as slowly, <laughs> energetically. this <laughs> We're enamored, you know, we're desiring, we're craving that pleasant hit. Or maybe it's, you know, the hot shower in the morning. Or a particularly delectable moment is when after a long day, and you just lie down in bed, you know, that first moment, it's delightful. <laughs> and we do become rather enamored of it. You can also investigate, you know, this conditioning in the enjoyment of pleasant fantasies in the mind. So it's not only the physical senses, the same dynamic as work is at work with pleasant pleasurable mental experience you know it's it's possible to spend a long time on retreat just immersed and lost in pleasant fantasies they might be you know pleasant food fantasies or maybe really exciting sexual fantasies or fantasies about your next perfect relationship, whatever it may be. The mind is very creative, and we can spend a long time just enjoying the pleasure of these kinds of experiences. So at some point in this investigation, one might resonate with the Buddha's words Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. Now, that seems like a very ordinary statement. But that would be really useful to reflect on. Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. So, we've all enjoyed endless number of agreeable things. Do we have that sense that whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have already found? Or are we still holding out for some fantastic new taste or some unbelievably pleasant touch sensation? Do we still have the hope that there's something else out there that's going to do it for us? If we can come to some sense of whatever gratification there is in the world that I have found, based on our own experience, we might relax a little bit, you know? And instead of that endless quest for the next hit of something, it's not gonna be really any different than any of the previous pleasant hits that we've already had. But we're seduced. You know, oh, the next one is going to be the big one. Okay. The Buddha did not stop in his understanding of gratification and what provides it. He then went a bit further in his exploration. Bhikkhus, that's you. I set out seeking the dangers of the world. So first he's looking what is the gratification in the world which is the pleasure of the sense the sense delights then he said well what is the danger of the world and danger is the translation one translation of the pali word adinava and there are other translations which which are a little more colloquial and i like so we might think of this as what are the drawbacks of the world or the disadvantages, or the downside of things. And he continued, and whatever dangers or downsides there are in the world, that I have also found. Namely, that the world is impermanent, and because of that, ultimately unreliable, because nothing lasts subject to change. So this is, again, not esoteric understandings. If we're paying attention, we can, I think, relate quite easily to this comprehension of, yeah, there are all these pleasures and gratifications, but there is a downside in experience. Downside is that Things are impermanent, unreliable, subject to change. But here's where most of us and the Buddha may take slightly different paths. For us, how many times when things are really good? When things are going well, they're easeful, we're enjoying our lives. You know, things are just rolling along in an easeful way. How often do we have enough interest and foresight and wisdom right in the midst of those good times to ask the question, well, what's the downside here? When I look at my own experience, not that often. Mostly I'm immersed in just the pleasure of of the enjoyment. But that's, of course, what makes the Buddha the Buddha. He didn't, he didn't just stop in that. He said, okay, in the midst of this, acknowledging that there is that kind of sense gratification. So he's not denying that, but in the midst of it, he asked that further question. Well, right in the midst of this experience, is there a downside? Is there a drawback? So there are several ways of understanding what these drawbacks of sense pleasures are. And again, it's worth just reflecting on it in our own lives because we're so so easily seduced by the gratification. You know, we don't often look underneath. So, one of the downsides, one of the drawbacks, is that in the end, these sense pleasures don't deliver on their promise of happiness. We think they will, and we hope they will, but they don't. Precisely because they don't last. You know, we we believe that they'll bring us happiness because of the pleasant feelings that come when we have pleasant sense experience. You know, there's, there's a pleasant feeling that we enjoy. And these experiences do bring some kind of happiness, so it's not to deny that. They do bring a kind of happiness for some time. But all of these pleasant feelings that come, you know, with beautiful sights and sounds and smells and touch and sensations and thoughts and all of it, With all of those pleasant experiences, the pleasant feelings associated with them are very, very transitory. And we know that. This is what's so amazing to me. You know, when we look back on our lives and look back on all the pleasant things we've experienced in our lives, which are countless. But when we look back, their ephemeral nature is so apparent. It's like, where are they now? You know, where's the pleasure of lunch now? (laughs) Yeah, totally gone. So (laughs) what's so amazing to me is we know this when we look back. But when we look ahead in anticipating the next pleasures, we just forget what we just learned. (laughs) As if, oh, well, the next one is going to do it in a way that, None of the other ones we've experienced have. So, our well, minds are a trip. <laughs> you know, and for me, the interest and the, the power and the kind of delight in the meditation is just, you know, learning the tools for examining and understanding our own minds and our own hearts and how we get involved in things that just create more suffering and how it's possible to disentangle from that. That's really what we're doing here. It's, it's this exploration of your own experience. You know, if we keep going after these momentary sense pleasures or even ones that last for some little bit of time, but eventually end, as they all do, how many people are just living their lives, that this is their life? You know, it's just always looking forward to the next pleasant hit of something. And then that passes, and then looking for the next hit, and the next hit, and the next, and before we know it, our life's at an end, without ever having come to a sense of fulfillment, or a sense of peace, or a sense of completion. So this is not an insignificant pattern, right? it's, And that's why the Buddha gave such importance to understanding craving. You know, it's the second noble truth. This is the cause of suffering in our lives. You know, as lay people, we are living. We're, we're living in the world of sense. Objects, sense, pleasure, sense, delights. Um, Most of us are not leading renunciate lives. So to one extent or another, we are engaged, you know, in in this arena. But still, each one of us, everyone here on some level knows that it's not really the path to happiness. Because if you believe that it was... You'd be on some nice vacation someplace, (laughs) and you wouldn't be here (laughs) struggling with pain in your knee. (laughs) So something brought you here, you know, and it's not so easy to kind of arrange to be here. So for each one of us, there is some very deep wisdom already there, because that's what brought us here together. I mean, we we all understand on some level that a growing realization of the dharma really does open up vast potentials for a much deeper kind of happiness. So the first drawback of relying on sense pleasures for happiness is that they don't deliver. Ultimately, it's a very temporary, very temporary enjoyment. The second danger, the second drawback of sense of craving is when this desire or craving becomes an obsessive force in the mind, which can lead to so many unwholesome actions. You know, newspapers are filled with stories of people doing all kinds of violent things, or harmful things driven by one kind of craving or another. So, one of my very favorite translation stories, uh, which I think many of you have probably heard, one time I was sitting on a retreat with Saida Upandita, and he would speak in Burmese, and then the translator. Translated into English, and at one point he was talking about sense desires, and he went on for quite a while, you know, maybe five minutes or ten minutes in Burmese, and then the translator translated that whole long thing into four words: <laughs> "Lust cracks the brain." <laughs> lust cracks the brain. It does. <laughs> Have you noticed? When that's strong, when that's really strong in the mind, it could be lust for anything. But when that's strong, we go crazy, and and people do so many harmful things, driven by that energy. So we need to take care, it's not the, the craving, the force of craving, it's not only about kind of the little broken coffee grinder and the disaster that that was. <laughs> Sometimes craving really is a powerfully destructive force, and we see it in the world, you know, it's When we take an interest in how all this is working, it can really lead to a much uh, fuller and more engaged and wholesome and skillful relationship with the world. Okay, so this is the first arena of craving. And I spend so much time on it because it's so powerful in our lives and it's so obvious. This, This is not an esoteric teaching. But we need to pay attention to it. You know, and again, I just want to reiterate, all of these Dharma talks and everything we do here, it's not a question of listening and you either believe or you don't believe. It's all an invitation to look for yourselves. You know, that's what the Buddha is just pointing us, just take a look within yourself to see, does this resonate? Is this true? Because that's where the transformative value is. It's not in the intellectual comprehension of it. So, the second type of craving is more subtle and often goes unnoticed. And it's one which has a direct bearing on our meditation practice. And there are elements of this which have had uh, really a profound effect on my own understanding of the meditative process. So this is what the Buddha called craving for becoming. And it's the basic urge or desire to become this or that. You know, in, in our continued existence, the craving for becoming. So one very familiar pattern of this you know, might be the obsessively planning mind. Have you ever been caught up? In a mind that just endlessly, obsessively planning, imagining ourselves in some future situation and then thinking about how we get there and what we have to do and all the things involved in that. How often do we get lost in the mind creations of future self? So again another interesting observation for you as you go through the day just keep keep just an eye out or a general sense of how much time the mind is lost in either past or future it's a lot you know our minds just get caught up in this desire for becoming And then all the thought and emotion that goes with that. So just keep in mind, being lost in these thought fantasies is desire for becoming. But there is a way of planning is a useful tool of the mind. This is not to suggest we should never plan. But there is a huge difference between planning and being grounded in the moment, knowing we're doing it thinking it through and coming to the end of it but really being grounded in the present moment there's a big difference between that and as i'm sure you well know being lost in the thought fantasies that just keep repeating themselves so pay attention to that you know and really see that one of the one of the most striking experiences of craving for becoming very easy to observe is the feeling of rushing. You know, what, what does rushing mean? What's that feeling like? And we're all familiar with the feeling, but it's when we're ahead of ourselves. It's when the mind is already at its destination before we get there. We're already doing what we're aiming to do, but we're still here. You know, And it's that toppling forward energy You know, a famous line from James Joyce from the Dubliners, a collection of stories, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> you know, that's us. A good part of the time we're living a short distance from our bodies, we're ahead of ourselves. So what is that? That's a kind of craving for becoming. It's like we're not settled back in the moment. Rich we wanting or craving and it's creating a very unbalanced energe- energetic system this is not insignificant because this understanding of craving for becoming is intimately connected with the understanding of you could say, enlightenment, or freedom, or awakening. So there's something right in this point that's very, very powerful. Because very often, in fact probably most of the time, we forget that liberation or freedom is not about getting, it's not about becoming something, it's not about craving, it's not about holding on. The very path we're on and what we're practicing, what is the essence of the practice, and this is why I started the talk saying it's good to have an eye on the last step because it informs how we take the first steps. When we understand that liberation is not about getting anything, it's about letting go, that changes how we're doing our practice. Are you familiar with the experience when you're sitting And could be in the walking too, but I've noticed it a lot, you know, in my sitting meditation. And what I'm going to be talking about now is really quite subtle. But I think obvious enough that you will recognize it. Is When we're sitting and we're just, you know, with our experience, the breath or sensations or whatever it is, we're just there in a pretty easeful way. But have you ever noticed just this very subtle tendency to be leaning into the next moment? It's, it's like we're leaning into the process. We're with this in order for this. We're taking this breath in order for the next thing to arise. So it's that slight forward leaning that is craving for becoming. A few years ago I was on self-retreat and I had a really vivid and in some way transformative experience of just this process. There's a line in the suttas, in the discourses, that's repeated quite frequently. it's a line that sometimes is said, people will say it as an expression of their awakening moment. And sometimes it's a line that when people hear it, they get enlightened. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Incredibly simple. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Whatever, which is everything. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So I was sitting, I was sitting on retreat. And, you know, I had read that line a million times. And yeah, everything rises and passes just seemed like an obvious statement. But this particular time on retreat, I was sitting... And for some reason, that line came to my mind. But it's as if the line and the meaning of it dropped right into the process, the meditative process. So it was no longer on the intellectual level. It was like, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So it was being applied in that very moment to the flow of experience. And then the conclusion became strikingly obvious, right in this meditative process. If whatever has a nature to arise will also pass away, therefore, there's nothing to want. Because whatever it is that I might want meditatively, not leaving aside kind of all the external things, whatever I might want meditatively will also pass away. Therefore, there's nothing to want. And in that moment, just, oh. You know, it's just seeing it so vividly. There's nothing to want. In that moment, I could feel the mind drop back from even that slight leaning into the next moment. It was like, not wanting. And even though it was just for maybe a few moments, it was enough to actually recognize and taste the quality or the experience of the mind free of craving. Because I could see the mind go from the lean to not wanting anything, and the experience of the mind of not wanting, not the concept of the actual experience of the mind free of wanting, not wanting, was one of, was just one of incredible peace and completion. There was there was nothing more to do for that moment, and I saw that it really was, you could say, uh, a glimpse. Of the third noble truth, you know the first is that there's suffering or dukkha, the cause which is craving, the third noble truth is the end of dukkha, which is the end of craving, so we can get a taste of it, you know, which is very real it's not it 's not fabricated, and it may only last for a few moments, but as one Tibetan teacher would. Uh, often instruct, practice it, short moments, many times. You know, so we don't have to necessarily be practicing with this idea, oh, maybe some year I'll get to the end of craving, but that's you know, 10 lifetimes away. No, we can practice the profundity of the end of craving for a moment or a few moments, and actually taste it, actually experience what that is like. So that is a tremendous reorientation of our meditation practice. Because in some, just in some strange way, even though we may have heard all of these teachings, there's so much wanting that comes into the very meditation practice itself. you know, we're sitting and wanting something. Does this seem clear? It was clear to me. <laughs> but it was, I hope it is, because this was, this was really a, a sign, significant shift in my understanding, even after all these years of practice. This is after 45 years of practice. And this is one of the things that's so remarkable about the Dharma. We're always just at the forward edge of our understanding. Wherever we are, we're at our own forward edge. And the Dharma is so vast, it just keeps opening. You know, and very often there can be these very seemingly small insights that have a profound effect on our understanding of the path. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, therefore, there's nothing to want. And so, maybe just as an experiment sometimes when you're sitting, just occasionally drop in the phrase, not wanting. Is that, not wanting. And see if there's any kind of release in the mind from that forward lean into the process. You know, and then, and then you'll get a sense of oh, the relief, the ease, the peace. So, in the early morning of the Buddha's enlightenment, it said at the first appearance of the morning star, when the Buddha realized full enlightenment, full awakening, It said that these words came to his mind. Realized is the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. It couldn't be more explicit. He's just telling us what the nature of the free mind is, what the nature of the mind at peace is. And again, we can touch it, we can taste it, we can experience it, even briefly, short moments many times, and it transforms our understanding, our understanding of our lives and all the choices we make, and our understanding of the path and how we're practicing. So I just found that these moments, really touching this and understanding this, Mind not wanting, not craving, settle back into that openness. Even those short moments can then become a pole star, a sense of direction for us. So we really have a clear understanding of where we're going and what we're essentially doing in our practice. You now, because there are so many instructions and methodologies and things to do, but they're all in the service of not wanting, and we don't want to forget that. So, I'll just close with just a few lines from the Sufi poet Hafez. He said, Ever since happiness heard your name, it has been running through the streets trying to find you. I love that. <laughs> okay, so the Dharma has heard our name, all of our names, and it's running through the streets trying to find us. So let uh, let let ourselves be found. Huh.